Kids, I hope you have a wonderful time in Children's Church. If you're remaining, I'd encourage you to turn uh, to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be reading from uh, verses 4 to 25. Um, What we've been talking about over the past week or so is that life often presents us with fundamental or ultimate questions uh, that often demand to be answered. And no matter how much we want to ignore them or entertain ourselves away from them or distract ourselves away from them, uh, these questions are relentless and they demand to be answered. Uh, These are questions like, how did we get here? What is the purpose of humanity or mankind? Why is there so much pain in this world? Um, If there is a God, uh, what is he like? Um, there's this wonderful old episode of the sitcom, uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. I don't know if you've ever seen the show before, um, but there's a, a scene where they, uh, Ray and Deborah are the parents, and they have a little daughter whose name is Allie, and Allie comes to them one day and says, Mom and Dad, how are people made? And Ray and Deborah look at each other thinking, oh, it's time we now have to have the birds and the bees conversation with Allie, and they look at one another and say, who's the one that's going to have to have this conversation? And For some reason, Ray's the one that draws the short stick and has to have the conversation with Allie, and he goes into her room, he starts talking with her, and uh, starts the birds and the bees discussion. She stops him right in the middle of it, and she said, I don't want to know how people are made, I want to know why there are people. Why are there people out there? And Ray is dumbfounded, doesn't know how to answer the question. Nobody in the family can figure out how to answer this fundamental question that came out of the mouth of a 10-year-old girl. Last week, we looked at the question of how did we get here? How did the world get here? And in the process, we saw a lot about the character of God that comes through in creation. But this morning, what I want us to turn to is the question of why. Why humanity? How did we, as human beings, get here? Uh, How are we unique? And what is our purpose as human beings? And to answer that question, I want us to turn to what God has to say in Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to be reading from verses 4 through verse 25. This is God's Word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. 
It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. Father, be with us now as we look at this uh, such important text, this fundamental text that helps us answer many of the big questions that life presents to us. So be with us now. Give us your spirit to help us understand your word and to apply it to our lives and apply it to those questions uh, that demand to be answered. So be with us now. Visit us with your spirits in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Many of you know that um, for the better part of my professional life, I've been working with teenagers. Um, For 15 years, I was a youth director at a church for a long time. And uh, even now, I teach teenagers, and I coach a lot of teenagers, and it's always been uh, one of my favorite age groups to work with over the years. And part of that is because it's a very important time in their life, those adolescent teenage years. And I think it's important because uh, children, teens, are asking for really the very first time the question, who am I? And they're really starting to explore the answers to that question aside from their parents and their family. Who am I going to be as a person? It's a sort of intense time of identity formation, and it makes it really fun to work with that age group. But the truth is, I think we never really stop asking some of those questions. I think those questions come at at different stages and in different times in our life, but those questions always persist throughout our lives. In fact, Beck and I joke around and look at each other every once in a while and say, what are we going to be when we grow up, right? And part of that's because those questions are always with us. Uh, Brian Posner calls this the elusive self, a perpetual identity crisis that we all live with. And I think God's word has something really profound to say to us who are always sorting through this question, who am I? And we start with the recognition that we read on the very first few pages of God's word, the recognition that we are a creation of God. 
We're a creation of God. Verse 7 said this, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. See, Genesis tells us that God wanted to create something that was unique and different from the rest of the created world. And so he takes dust from the ground and this beautiful picture of intimacy. He intimately breathes life into the nostrils of man, bringing this first man, Adam, to life. Notice how unique all of this is. This is so different than all of the rest of God's creation, different from all the other elements that we read about. And then we come to the first woman, God decides to create the first woman, and this is a unique creation process as well. He puts Adam to sleep. He takes a rib from Adam's body. He uses that rib to make the first woman, and finally we have these two genders that complement one another. Now, there's so much depth here. Uh, There's so much to talk about, so much tremendous implications for the way our culture thinks about gender and marriage and all the things related to it from this passage. But before we rush to the depth of that conversation, we cannot miss the simplicity of what is presented to us here, and that is this. God is the creator, and we are the creation. God is the creator, and we are the creation. For years, theologians have called this the creator-creature distinction. And one theologian that was really well known for this said this, a man named Cornelius Van Til, he said this. He said, it's our business as Christians to begin our interpretation of reality upon the presupposition of the creator-creature distinction as basic to everything else. We must refuse to say one single word about the nature of reality as a whole before we introduce the creator-creature distinction. Okay, what's that in real English? The real English is this. We can never truly understand the reality of the world around us until we first understand that God is our creator and we are his creatures. We won't understand the world until we first understand this. John Calvin said a very similar thing when he said, we will never be able to understand ourselves until we first understand who God is. Now, why is this so fundamental? Why are these questions of identity so fundamental? I think they're fundamental because we always live out of our sense of identity. We always live out of it. Examples. Well, if I define myself as an athlete, I'm going to train and I'm going to go to practice. If I define myself as an academic, I'm going to read a lot. I'm going to study a lot. If I define myself as an entertainer, I'm always going to want to find the next stage where I can entertain other people. We always function out of our sense of identity. And so if God provides us the answer, he is the creator and we are his creatures, what does that look like? How does that flow out of our lives? What's the outworking of this? And I think the outworking is clear. The outworking of we being the creation of our creator is that we are called to submit and to worship our creator. If he's our creator, then it's our job to submit our lives to him. Think about it this way. A car always submits to the boundaries of its designer. 
A watch submits to the parameters of its creator, and for those things to rebel against its design is to forfeit its identity. The same is true for us. To rebel against our design of our creator is to forfeit our own identity and even our own usefulness. To rebel against our creator's boundaries and our parameters is to actually rebel against humanity itself. To rebel against God sort of makes us subhuman or not optimally human because we're rebelling against the designs of our creator. This is so simple, but we so often forget it. And we get in trouble when we forget that we are the creation, and instead what we do is we try to be the creator. And if you join us next week, you'll see that that's precisely what Adam and Eve do. They forget that they are the creation, and instead they want to be the creator. So the question is, who am I? The answer, you are a creation, intimately formed by a creator, and we owe that creator our obedience and our submission and our worship. But the truth is, there's more to it than just that. As simple and as profound as that is, there's more to it than just that, because what we read in our passage this morning is also this, that not only are we a creation, but that we are created in the image of God. If you go back to uh, the first chapter, it says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then the writer breaks into poetry. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I have four kids at home, and those four kids all reflect my image back to me every single day. Uh, They don't just have physical resemblance of my wife and I, but they also have personality resemblances as well. Often they reflect our flaws back to us, and we hope sometimes as parents they reflect our strengths back to us as well, but they reflect our own image back to us. And so we come to this passage, we see that God created humanity in his image. It's the one thing that makes us unique. It makes us different from the rest of the created world that is around us. We find joy in creation, just as God does. We have the capacity to bring organization out of chaos. We have a sense of things like right and wrong, things that are beautiful and things that are ugly. We are, we are thinking and feeling beings that are full of all sorts of loves and full of loyalties. You and I, we don't just act on instinct. Instead, we have the capacity to weigh out reasonable and logical decisions. All these things are a reflection of the image of God in each one of us. So who are you? Yes, you are a creation, but you are a creature that is made in the image of God. 
Now, what's the outworking of this? If we really do always act out of our sense of identity, what does this look like to live out this part of our identity? A couple things. First, it means that we all have an inherent dignity to us. We all have an inherent dignity. And I want you to go through a thought exercise for a minute. I want you, as you sit here for a second, to think about the person that you, in your life, that, that you just can't stand. The, most, the person that is most reprehensible to you in your mind. The person that when they enter the room, you want to run in the opposite direction. Now, I know all of you are just wonderfully nice people who are very kind to everyone, but let's face it, we all can think of someone when I ask you to think about someone. This is a person whose voice makes your skin crawl. Even that person, even that person, as much as you dislike them, even that person has an inherent dignity to them because they were created in the image of God. As reprehensible as you may think them to be or as reprehensible as they may actually be, they still have an inherent dignity that deserves your respect. They have that dignity because they also are created in the image of God. And maybe you can't respect them or can't respect their personality or their abrasiveness or whatever it is, but at least you can respect and honor the fingerprints of God that are all over them. See, the truth is that the fall of man, the introduction of sin, marred this image of God in people, but it didn't erase it. We all still have it. And it even means that we can learn about God from his image that is reflected in one another. We all have an inherent dignity to us because we are created in the image of God. Secondly, we see here that we're called to be culture creators. Our passage tells us that God puts Adam and Eve in the garden to work it and to keep it. Adam is given this amazing job of naming all the animals we see uh, in, in verse 19. Uh, the, cha- pre- the chapter before this, Adam and Eve are told to be fruitful, multiply, to fill the earth with these image bearers. They're given the job of subduing the earth, having dominion over the created world. What is all this? Well, Adam and Eve are given the task to create culture. That's what God calls them to do. Now, we often think of paradise as a place where there is no work, but if you notice here, work existed before mankind uh, fell in the garden. And what that means is that God gave Adam and Eve work to do, work without frustration, work without futility that we often feel so much when we think about work. This is work without frustration, without futility that comes later on but work nonetheless. We are given work to do as God's image bearers. We are to create culture in our families, to to create God's image in the culture of our work and in the culture of our neighborhood and in our city as well. So don't miss that we are created to do something. We are called to participate in the work of God, not just be Passive spectators that let life pass us by, we are caused to be called to be participants in the work of God in our world. And so we best nurture this image of God as we create and subdue and have dominion over the created world around us, as we bring order out of chaos. When we do all these things, 
we mirror our creator. Third, we see that part of this is the stewardship of the created world that is around us, stewardship of it, caring of it. One commentator gave the illustration of a house sitter, which I often think is a great illustration to think about this. We've had house sitters over our time, and often Becca will buy uh, lots of groceries and put them in the refrigerator and make up the bed and clean up the house, say, you come here, you come to the house, you enjoy our food, you enjoy our house, you enjoy all the things that come from it. Your job is just to sort of protect it and take care of it. And in many ways, that's what God has done for us in this world. We are called to be faithful stewards with, the, with a world that he owns, but has invited us to enjoy. We are creational stewards just as much as we are cultural creators. And then finally what we see here, and this might be the most profound, because of this image of God that's in us, we are all relational beings. We are social beings. Isn't it interesting that at every step of the creation, God says, it is good. He declares that after every step. Then you come to verse 18 and it says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper that is fit for him. See, what it shows us is that we are created as human beings to be in relationship. And so God forms these first human relationships for Adam, and it's this, the original father of the bride story. He brings the first woman to the first man, and he oversees this first marriage between Adam and Eve. But the implications of this are for all of our relationships, not just the marriage relationship. It reminds us that you and I not created to be alone. We are created to thrive within the context of relationships. Didn't we see this effect with COVID just you know, a few years ago when all these lockdowns came and we all were sort of huddled in our homes and we suffered because of it. We suffered in so many ways, emotionally and physically and spiritually. Why? Because we were isolated from other people, isolated from these relationships that we were created to nurture and enjoy. We were created to be relational, to nurture the image of God is to run towards relationships and not away from them. But what we see is most powerfully, we need a relationship with God. That's the paradise of Eden here. We often think Eden was so, such a paradise because you've got these you know, um, precious metals that are everywhere and these great rivers that flow and water the fruits of the trees and we imagine the paradise of it all. But the greatest part of this paradise was man's perfect and abiding relationship with his creator. Think about the beauty of Eden and all the elements here. We see the image of God in us working towards perfection, right? That's what we see in Eden. Man has a perfect relationship with God. Man had a perfect marriage and a perfect relationship with other people. And man man had a perfect relationship with the created world that was around him. All these relationships flowing together is what made Eden the paradise that it was. Now, all of these things are going to be marred. All of these things are going to be marred by man's rebellion, and we'll look at that next week. But don't forget that that doesn't erase 
the image of God that is within all of us. We are still our most human when the image of God within us works out in treating other people with dignity, in stewardship, in cultural creation, and in relationship with God and others. So don't miss it. Who are you? If you've ever asked that question, who am I? Who are you? You are a creation of God. You are formed in the image of God. You bear his fingerprints. You were formed with a purpose and a function. But we cannot forget that even though all these things are true and we are unique and different amongst God's created world, we are still not the center of all of it. God is. That's what we saw last week. As unique and, un- and different as we are, we are still not the center of all of this. God is. And when we truly live in this, into this image of God that we're created in, we move away from a human-centered view of the world around us and towards a God-centered view of it all. What's that mean? It means that you were made to live for him. And in so doing, you live out that design that he created you with. Next week, we're going to see how all of this goes terribly wrong in Genesis chapter 3. But we also see that even when it all goes wrong, God jumps into action, immediately preparing a hero for us in Jesus Christ who comes to make all things right, and we get to marvel at his great plan of redemption executed to perfection in the scriptures and in each one of our lives. But finally, don't miss this. We looked at the beginning here, but the Bible also calls us to always look forward as well. And what we see at the end of the scriptures, we look forward to a future city that guess what has, in the very center of this future city is another garden. And what we see in that garden is another marriage, the final marriage, this time between Christ and his bride, his church, and his people. We look forward to that perfection that will be restored when God brings consummation to his great plan of redemption. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, maybe you've heard of his story before, a theologian in Germany who resisted the Nazis, was later imprisoned by the Nazis, and was died, before, uh, died in prison before the end uh, of World War II. But towards the end of his life, he wrote a poem. And I'll finish with the last stanza of this poem. He wrote a poem um, that is entitled, Who Am I? He wrote this while in prison awaiting his death. And he wrote this, Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once? a hypocrite before others, and before myself a contentably woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. And then the last line of his poem reads this. Who I am really? You know me. I am yours. Oh God, I am yours, oh God. Let's pray.